Kings get glory for investigating things. Proverbs 25, 2 is on the back. It's in the NASB 95. And you have heard it like this. It is to the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out the matter. Last week, we established some things about kings. This week, we're going to move on into that understanding. You are a bride of Christ. Many of you hold to that fact. Even though the Bible doesn't say in the Peshat in the very clear, it infers it and backs it up. It is true. It also says that you are kings of the king. Amen? Amen. If you were here last week, you got a short sermon on that. <laughs> it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out the matter. Can you feel the tension between those two truths? Because that's your life. God conceals things and holds them to himself, but then he waits for the kings in the earth to rise up and actually go find out what is concealed. Therefore, it's revealed to you. And in between, there are some things that happens. I want to talk to you about that this morning. Is that okay? That means that there are glory less kings and there are glory s kings. Can y'all just get on board with me this morning? I would say that glory less kings realize that there are things of, that God knows that you don't know. Anybody can I get a witness? But glory less kings realize that there are things that God knows that they don't know. They settle with that and they never they do never do anything to fix it. This kind of king has no honor and remains spiritually bankrupt. But glorious kings, which are you, amen? amen? Glorious kings are not offended that God actually hides things from you, but expects and steps up into the challenge to find out the unknown. These kind of kings carry a heavy honor because they have wealth of spiritual experience and they have the marks to prove it. In your Bible, the heavy presence of God is called the kavod, the kavod, right? And we... Kings carry that on them. It's weighty. One of the things, one of these things lives can be painfully aware of, or your life can painfully become aware of, is that that glory of the Lord that you carry as a glorious king can cause you pain. It can inflict you. I mean, wasn't Yeshua afflicted on many times? That many times? Yeah. 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 Well, the glory less kings receive a new name in heaven, but they do nothing with it. Glorious kings, well, they know that they're called by name and they actually do something with what was given to them. There's a tension between the two truths of Proverbs here, and I want to walk you through that this morning. Romans 28, I'm sorry, 828 says it like this in the NASB 95. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for our good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That translation is a little misleading for you because what it actually says in the Greek concept is God partners with those who love him back in the totality of all things. To meet God's purposes in his life. That's different than the saying, God caused that to happen. He made me do that. He forced me to do this. That's different. 
We're going to dig deep this morning. I'm giving you meat, not milk, because you asked for it. Verse 29 says, for those he foreknew, he also then predestined. Many of you think this like, so all those he predestined, he predestined. That's not what it says. All those he foreknew beforehand, there was a possibility for, and those people in and of that group, now he has something for them. He has something he predestined for them. Some set markers that were going to be, no matter what, period, for those he then foreknew before they actually happened. What, what are they? It says it right here. He predestined those people to become conformed to the image of the Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these that he did predestine, he also then called them, and those he called, he also justified, just as it hadn't been. And these whom he justified, he also then glorified. His kavod rests upon these kings. Are you with me this morning? Today's message is going to be a circular message. You know what a circular message is? It means I'm going to start one place with a couple scriptures and an idea. We're going to work way around it. And by the time we're done, we're going to come back to it with better clarity than you had when we began. Because right now I just said a few things and you're like, question mark. Because that's how you create hunger. You're a hungry group of people. But you showed up starving for the word. Now you have the word. And let's be honest, when you get the word, it makes you more hungry. That's purposeful. Today's message is a circular message. And today's message is also going to touch on a few things like the foreknowledge of God, the predestination of events, and your free will in all of these giant ideas that I just threw out at you. They're not that big. You just made them that big. Today's question, today's message most definitely is going to create more questions than answers I give you today, and I'm going to just be okay with that. I'm a messenger. God's the answer, right? Just saying. That's my disclaimer. Saints, but our aim today is to free you from what I call a paralysis by analysis. Do you know what that is? That is a person who thinks about all things and never does anything of eternal value with those things that they do know because they know something. You're like, I got the truth. And all of a sudden you're like, ooh, don't mess it up. Included in my aim today is to empower you also further in your commission. Somebody say commission. In your co-mission with God so that you can indeed move forward with your life, advancing God's kingdom through all your pains, through all your achievements, your up and downs, through all the regrets, through all the unknowns, through all the failures that you have in life, through all the truth you have received and the things that you don't know in times of difficulty and the unknown and the uncertainty, we want to empower you to keep Moving forward and don't quit. So now you know what kind of message we're going to have. Now you know our basic scriptures. Now you know the aim that I'm really shooting at. Now we're going to move on into the message. Amen? Amen. Today's message is called Glorified Kings and Gunpowdered Scars. Glorified Kings and Gunpowder Scars. Are you with me? 
Proverbs 25, 2 told us, God gets glory from concealing things. Kings get glory from investigating them. Wow. Last week we established to you that we are kings of the king. Amen? This week we're going to find out that although this kind of life is not a painless life, nor without its failures, <laughs> it's a glorious life. Oh, it's the best job I've ever had. It's the best life I could have. With all its afflictions, persecution, pain, and everything that I, my flesh doesn't really want. It's a good life. Right, Jen? It's a good, good life. I see so many Christians who truly love Yeshua, who truly love Jesus, and they struggle so much because they simply do not know what is coming next in their life. Right? Everybody wants the answers. Nobody wants to trust. They strive so much to know what tomorrow will bring before they move on, even one inch in faith. With what they do know. <laughs> We're so worried about it. Well, I mean, if I make a decision in faith or if I make this choice, what it'll cost me. But if I take this step, will I get it wrong? And if, what if it hurts me? Well, I've done that before and that hurts me too. So will I repeat my pain? I'm not a sugar-coated gospel kind of guy. Just saying, I'm just get it out there. But the word is sweet. I have these plans that I make and the decisions that I make, and, but it might cost me something. <laughs> yeah, every time. But do we have the right type of relationship with God himself that we know that we want it to cost us something? And then we put that to rest because Yeshua said, hey, count the cost before you even start. That way you're not calculating the whole way. And you know what it creates along the way? Scars, wounds, and we were like really not okay with that. Then it petrifies us. Today, I want to start this message by telling you that wounds in the kingdom, they're inevitable. So you need to stop avoiding them. Because I want to teach you today that wounds can either kill you or heal you. Depending on how you actually perceive their purpose, and if you are not preoccupied with having, not having any, you'll be better forerunners of the gospel of the kingdom of God. You know what I mean. Something hurts you one time, and you're like, the next time, the first time you're like, there was no reserve. The second time you're like, maybe. That's tension between two truths that Proverbs is trying to allude to you. The word is trying to give you a forecast of your life so that you're not disturbed by it when, you, when wounds come. I want to start today by a story, and I'm going to give you an excerpt that we put on the TV here. And I'm going to read it to you verbatim from a book called The Miracle of the Scarlet Thread by Richard Booker, which my gen... I was like, I wonder, yeah, I wonder how many. Uh, yeah, yeah. My Jen and Sarah Ward are studying together. 
She shares with this with me as they continue to study the word. I'm not studying with them, but she shares it with me. Hey, go figure. This is about a story about a man named Henry Stanley. It's a man who learned the wisdom of receiving scars through a life of obedience to the will of God. Can you get on board with me this morning? I know you can't see this, so I'm going to read it to you. I did not plan for you to actually see that. I just wanted to say that I'm actually reading something. <laughs> Verbatim. It says, in 1869, the New York Herald newspaper sent their overseas news correspondent, Henry Stanley, to find a Scottish missionary and explorer named Dr. David Livingstone. Many of you have heard of him. Dr. Livingstone had disappeared for six years and Stanley was sent to prove he was not dead. In 1871, Stanley found Livingstone. During his expedition, Stanley came in contact with a powerful African tribe, but he was in no condition to fight them. When his interpreter suggested he make a covenant with the tribal chieftain, Stanley did so which required days of negotiations with the chief. Watch this. After the terms of the covenant were reached, an exchange of gifts ensued. The chief wanted Stanley's goat. <laughs> it's like equivalent to your dog. He wanted Stanley's goat, but it was even better than your dog because it brought him some things. And nothing less in exchange for his seven-foot spear. Stanley reluctantly yielded but felt he had he got the lesser of the end of the deal. The goat had provided Stanley much needed milk for, the, for his health. So what good would a spear do to him? More than he realized. Next, the tribal priest brought forth a cup of wine. The old chief selected one of his sons, a prince, and required Stanley to select an Englishman. Both became substitutes for the covenant makers and representatives of the two parties. The priests made an incision in each man's wrist and let their blood drip into wine. The cup was stirred and they each drank from the mixed blood and wine. When the priest pronounced terrible curses over Stanley, then Stanley's interpreter pronounced curses over the chieftain, his family, and his tribe. Curses that would come upon anyone who broke the covenant. Finally, the two men rubbed their cut wrists together along with gunpowder to mingle their blood and become blood brothers. The gunpowder scar remained as a visible mark of the covenant. This act not only bound Stanley and the chieftain together, it included the tribal warriors with the company of Englishmen. The blood brotherhood became permanent and a tree was planted as a memorial of the covenant. After the covenant ceremony, the chieftain declared to his people, come buy and sell with Stanley for he is our blood brother. For then on, Stanley and his men no longer guarded their possessions. Nothing was touched. To steal from Stanley and his men were to break the covenant and steal from the chieftain himself. An act which an act which brought the penalty of death. Everywhere Stanley went in Africa, the spear proved to be more powerful than the goat. The copper wound spear carried the old chieftain's authority and everybody bound, uh, bowed to him and submitted to him. Blood covenant was so sacred, it was never broken by anyone. 
Neither Stanley nor Livingstone ever witnessed anyone breaking it. No one could remain alive in Africa who broke the covenant. The curses, who, the curses would overtake them, carried out by the people bound to the covenant. Covenants were so revered that the children to the third and fourth generation would keep it. There's no doubt that God had already had a witness in this tribe before a messenger of Yahweh actually showed up with the message of Yeshua. There's no doubt about that because God has a witness in every nation. Before this started with Israel, it started with every nation. Saints, when you gave your life to Yeshua, when you gave your life to Jesus, his life and your life became one life. You became one in covenant with him. A foreigner made a covenant together with Israel and his people and its king. Amen? Amen. When you gave your life to Jesus, it came through his crucified body and your circumcised heart. When you gave him your goat-like nature in exchange for his perfect Holy Spirit and salvation, a weapon more dangerous than the spear was given to you. But what you learned afterwards was that what was given to you came with a powerful authority to make judgments and decisions based on his merit wherever you went, even if he was not present. To him, you and he were one. You were blood family. To the chief, all of the tribes were his, and therefore he was chief of all tribes. You became his own, and you had scars to prove it. But you weren't done collecting scars at that point, and I think we all know that. What was it that was verbally spoken over these men as they received wounds from one another? Wounds that were infused with explosive power. Curses. Saints, your relationship you have with Jesus is a covenant cut and sealed by the blood. Amen? Amen. Every time you make the choice to break that covenant, it does feel like a curse that creates a wound. And you can feel it. But when you repent and begin to make choices that he would make, he heals that wound and it's no longer a wound, is it? What is it now? It's a scar. Gunpowder. Scars. Scars infused with a powerful moment that leaves a mark on you for the rest of your life that you'll remember what happened that day. If you were Henry and you lost your spear, what would happen? If you were journeying and you were Henry and you went forward in your, in your journey and, and you're like, man, this spear represents authority on the merit of the chief. Wherever I go, people say yes and they yield to my authority because it's his authority. What happened if you lose that spear? Well, then I guess you wouldn't lose those scars. The scars that you carry, they came from either you inflicting yourself or other people inflicting them, and they speak a powerful message. 
They say, although my decision-making may not have been perfect, and although my decision-making still may not be perfect, my God is persistent to heal me. My God is persistent to heal me. He is faithful to heal me, so therefore I will be faithful to never cease to show up and to never stop moving forward, no matter the affliction that it places upon me. Those who have made a covenant with the chief of all chiefs, the king of glory himself, ought to think about this because they ought to think about no longer hiding their scars. Nor living a life worried about receiving the wounds that are ahead because they're inevitable and they keep you on pause from actually moving forward because you're so afraid that they're going to happen, saints. It's going to happen. It's actually part of the sanctifying process. Some of you need to be wounded because you got some things festering in your flesh that need to be cut open so that it can heal. Other of you need to be healed because you've had wounds for too long that you did not give to him. And he wants to make them a scar, not leave them a wound. But you're too afraid to approach him because he's found in his people. Wounds can also come from making righteous decisions, not just wrong decisions, saints. Wounds can come from making poor decisions that you make or other people making poor decisions, and you would like to avoid them. Amen? But they also come from your righteous decisions or simply participating in the divine nature, as Peter says, in the first place, because we are in a war for the souls of men. And the next time you need to find a friend for a battle, let me ask you something. Are you going to go and seek out the friend that has scars? Or are you going to go seek out the friend that doesn't have a scratch on them? I'm going with the scarred man. I want to talk to you about a man who received a few scars along the way. Because in that process, he actually learned the heart of God. Along the way, he received the scars and he had he lived to tell about it and wrote about it. And so let's start in first Samuel with the story of King David. First Samuel chapter 23 is where you can start. And I believe in the supernatural power of God. So I'm going to read my Bible and believe the Lord will show me the words. Like physically, because I'm 45 now. My eyes are rebelling. <laughs> First Samuel. You can camp in 23. I'm going to back up for a minute and give you a little bit of background. When we're talking about David, some of the first mentions of David's life is found in chapter 16 and 17 of your Bibles. David spoken of as Jesse's son. He's called out because they're looking, Saul's, Saul is now exiting his kingship and he's going a little crazy. He's visited by demonic spirits. Not a good time, not a good thing. So he starts to ask like, bring me someone who can soothe this. 
If you're being visited by demonic things, you don't want them soothed. You want them gone. But Saul chooses to find someone who could, a worship player that can play a little music and make it go away. <laughs> I got a message today, so I don't have to move on from that because what you don't want is to keep going repetitively to a place where somebody sues your demons. We like to go to those places. Some of them got a steeple on the front. If you have some chapter headings, you can help me here. In, in chapter 16, mine says, Samuel anoints David. Did it say they made him king? No, it said he was anointed. So David was anointed before he was appointed as king. He was a... He was anointed before he was appointed as king. Your whole book of 1 Samuel is about a king in preparation for his kingship. 1 Samuel chapter 16, it tells about David being anointed, called out of the sons of Jesse, and anointed by God for his kingship. By the time you get to chapter 17, you see David is a courageous young man. And he didn't really ask permission. He sees a fight going on with the giants. And for some reason, he feels called to slay the giants. Although nobody told him to, he actually had to go to the battleground and then say, hey, like, why are you a bunch of cowards out here? I, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that has you on pause? But in chapter 17, you see David. And here's what's intriguing about David. David's called out from his father. He's anointed by God. He's anointed by the prophet Samuel. In chapter 17, you see David running to the mighty men. It's the first thing he does. He's anointed by God and he goes to, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go get direction about this warfare going on. And I'm going to run to a mighty man of God to get my answer. By chapter 18, after the instance of David and Goliath happened, we see another chapter heading and it says Saul's jealousy of David. So David starts to become known in, in the house of God. Saul takes issue with it. Well, first he likes it because he sues his demons. And then he gets him close to him, right? Puts on his armor. He starts to disciple him, right? And then when he, when he actually begins to do something with what Saul has given him, Saul's like, I don't like that. Probably because he was consulting his demons instead of Yahweh. So then what happens? Saul becomes jealous and he begins to push David away. And so what does David do? David runs to his friend. That's chapter 18. By the time you get to chapter 19, my chapter heading says Saul tries to kill David. So now it's getting worse and it's escalating and he starts to run away. He starts to get pushed away from Saul. And what happens to David in chapter 19? David runs to his wife. So David runs to a mighty man first. And then second, David runs to a friend. And then now that things are escalating, he runs to his wife. It still doesn't cure the, the issue. By the time you get to know David, by the time chapter 20 comes... It says David and Jonathan in my chapter heading. That means David has made best friends with a man. His name was Jonathan. 
And so David doesn't know what to do about the escalation of warfare and the escalation of things coming against him. He doesn't have the answers. Have you ever been at a place where you just don't have the answers and you just keep running and you're running and you're running and so you run to a mighty man of God and that's not the answer? And then you run to your friend and, well, that wasn't the answer. And then you run to your wife and, well, that wasn't the answer, although she's so awesome. And so then you run to your best friend. Your best friend. You're like, they'll, they know me the best. They'll have the answer. Wasn't the answer. By the time we get to chapter 21, we start to see David is still on the run, and he runs to a place called Nob. And in Nob, David keeps running, and he runs to the prophet. Prophet wasn't the answer. By chapter 22, David runs to a cave. It's not going in the right direction. Oh, he met some pretty cool friends there. But it still wasn't the answer. Don't you want some answers? By the time we get to chapter 23, David, for the first time, inquires of the Lord. He's growing. His kingship is growing before he's actually appointed king. Have you felt like the Lord is growing you? And, you, and you're looking for answers, but you don't have the answers because you don't really know, but you're wrestling? Welcome to the kingdom. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. 1 Samuel 23 Verse 1, when David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looking, are, are looting the threshing floor. He inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? <laughs> Listen, there's something called the law first mentioned in the word. The first time it's mentioned is supposed to have more of your attention. This is the first time David seeks the Lord, Yahweh, for counsel in his whole entire existence in and of his anointed relationship with God. The only time the entire Bible, the entire book of Samuel says he seeks the Lord in his not enthroned kingship, but being prepared for it. The Lord answered him, go, attack the Philistines and say Keilah. But David's men said to him, here in Judah, we're afraid. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Did you see what happened there? If it's the law first mentioned, then it's very, very important. The first time David calls on, upon the Lord, the first time it mentions that David has to deal with fear in his camp. In the entirety of the narrative of David, he never expressed fear, period, and he's not expressing it here, but there's fear in his camp. The first time David calls on the Lord, it has to do with fear. The first time David calls upon the Lord, it has to do with should we advance. What does that mean? They're not advancing. Do you want to advance in the kingdom on a consistent basis? Then you should pay attention. 
The first time there is a reluctance to advance in the kingdom because, well, they're just not sure. God has led them so far, but the stakes are getting higher. I'm not really sure. The stakes are so high, God, how can this be you? What do you ask the rich young ruler? Let me just get that one thing. I give you all this. I've come this far. Yeah, but I want the one thing that you haven't given yet. <laughs> Every king's foundation must be founded in fearlessness. And God knew that, so he started with David the first time. And guess what? He led him to this place. It's the one thing that keeps us from advancing consistently in our kingship. I don't think you understand me. If Satan cannot kill you, he will petrify you. If Satan cannot kill you, he will keep you where you're at so that you never move forward in anything. Right. He'll give he'll let your revelation will be massive, but you will not do anything with it. What good is that? It's a fence that he created that you sit on. But you never cross over. Listen to what it says in verse four. This is profound. Once again, David inquired of the Lord second time and the Lord answered him. Praise God. Go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. Isn't it nice to pray to the Lord, then he gives you an answer? Right? You're like, whoo, it's comforting. He can hear. Right? He hears my prayers, and then he speaks to me too. So David and his men went to Keilah. You know what they didn't stop doing? Being fearful. But you know what they started doing? Being faithful. Anybody petrified by your fear and do nothing and waiting for it to leave? He needs to stop that. That doesn't work. And they fought the Philistines and they carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. Somebody say amen. amen. Now Abithar and Ahimelech had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to, to David in Keilah. It's just a little side note. I want you to notice something here for a minute. Somebody going to need to open that door for me as we move forward. Y'all cold, I'm not. And we'll let the world hear, amen? I want you to notice something here with me for a minute. David asked God what was going to happen, and God says, this is what's going to happen. Amen. God said, it's going to happen. Anybody in that camp, God said it, it settles it for me? He said it, sit, done. Wrong. Not every time. And I'm going to show you that. You know why? Because you were in a co-mission with God. That is a partnership based upon a blood covenant that he is the chief of, but he has placed his spear in your hand. He has given you the responsibility to both seek him and also make righteous decisions with him, for him, with what he has shown you. Welcome to the spirit-filled life. And just because he says it, this or that is going to happen, doesn't always mean it happens. 
Why? Because you have a part to play in this. What does that mean? Just because God shows you something in a vision. Anybody ever have a vision for the Lord? Premonition, right? Whatever you want to call it. Open vision, closed vision, dream, daydream, night dream, right? Us charismatics get all kind of interesting. You know what we say? This is what, here's the marker. I feel passionately about this, Pastor. The Lord showed me this, and I feel passionately about it. Anybody got the passionate moments, right? Like, I feel passionate about that. As soon as I hear that, I'm like, okay, let's sit down for a minute. Let's see if this is the Lord. So then you immediately assume that it settles it, and whether good or bad, that's the end of the matter. That's not how kings think. That's not how David and Yahweh started their relationship, and that's not how you shall proceed in yours. There are so many moving pieces in the spirit realm that you must be in daily communication with God. That's why Yeshua came, part of, and in an intimate relationship with him so that if things that are unseen move and shift, you move too. Listen to what verse 7 says as you get the mind of the enemy for a minute. Saul, enemy of David, was told that David had gone to Keilah and he said, God has delivered him into my hands. So David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with the gates and bars. And Saul called up all the forces of the battle to go down to Keilah and besiege David and his men. What happened? He automatically thought, this is what the circumstances are, so this is God. It's done. It's settled. He's in my hands. I'm going to defeat him. It's as good as done. Saul thinks like that. David did not. How many of you have ever had times where there were favorable conditions or favorable circumstances, right, that came your way, like an amazing job, right, or a house for a price that you couldn't pass up? Right? Or a perfect vehicle is half price. Everybody wants the perfect vehicle for half price. And you were certain that has to be God. Because every, every favorable circumstance is from God, right? That's how Saul thinks. Favorable circumstances are automatically God. No. I have watched so many people miss God for a good job in the wrong city. I've watched so many people miss God because they are still waiting for favorable circumstances. Saints, circumstances, whether good or bad, are not God. God is the God over all circumstances. He is holy, set apart, set apart from all things. He is the creator and can be in the creation and not be subject to it. He chooses when to intervene in these things while never ceasing to be in covenant with you, even though you're part of them. <laughs> uh, we skipped the salad, went right to the state. People who live like that become predictable to their enemy, and people like that become wounded warriors. But that's not... What's so important here? Verse 9, check this out. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, stop. 
how did they how did David know Saul was plotting against him? It doesn't say God told David. What an arrogant man just to move on behalf and have not heard from the Lord. But what he does now know is that he is exactly where God told him to go now and it put his life at risk. Risk can't be God. God didn't lead me into risk. <laughs> Pick up your cross and follow me daily and maybe you'll define following Jesus as risky. And if you don't, it's because you hadn't yet. Saints, have you ever gone where God has told you and it put your life at risk? Have you ever been there and it caused you to then question God and why he led you there? Yes. David did not ask why. David asked, what's next? Because that's what kings do. And he, and he said to Abithar, the priest, bring the ephod. David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul planned. <laughs> that, that's totally me. I'm like, the Lord said it. That's it. Your servant has definitely heard that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. While the citizens of Keilah surrendered, Will the, I'm sorry, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Good question. When Saul came down, as your servant had heard, Lord God, tell your servant. <laughs> this is the second time that David doesn't seek, that seeks the Lord, but he doesn't seek his face. He now seeks the ephah, which is a modern equivalent of the word. Some of you seek the Lord in prayer and get a verbal word from the Lord, right, in some form or fashion. And then other times you're reading his word and then it jumps off the page and like the Lord said. So what David's doing. The first time David seeks the spoken word, the second time he seeks a written word. Both ways God speaks to David. Good to know. You should actually love that Bible of yours. All 66 books. And the Lord said, he will. David asked again, let me confirm this, Lord. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, this is what's going to happen, David. They will. David, you will fight Saul. David, Saul will indeed kill these people on your behalf. And these people will betray you into the hands of Saul, even though you came down and saved them, even though you were their salvation, their Yeshua. Well, it's okay. I mean, everything happens for a reason, right? What an interesting train of theology some people have. Well, everything happens for a reason. Let's... Eat and die because tomorrow, well, let's eat and drink because tomorrow we die. It's written. It's done. I lost my job. I lost my, my spouse. I lost my child. Life's over. Screw it. Yeah. 
Verse 13, so David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah. Watch. And kept moving from place to place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he didn't go there. <laughs> I'm slow walking you through this because it's profound and you really get to understand this. Wait, what? So, so but God said that was what was going to happen, but it did not happen. Was God lying? Was David disobedient? Or did both of them know something that could really free you this morning yes it was said right here in verse 4 back up with me for a minute once again David inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered him go down to Kayla for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand so David and his men they went they fought Philistines and carried off the livestock he inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and he saved the people of Kayla somebody say amen, amen. God knew a thing before it happened. That's called divine foreknowledge. He knew it before it happened, and guess what? He shares it with David. That in itself is good news for you. It happened just as God said it would happen. When something comes to pass that God wants to happen, that means it was predestined or predetermined to happen in the mind of God. And how do we know? Because it happened. Verse 10 gives us more insight. David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on, our account, on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender to me? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard from God? Lord God of Israel, please tell your servant if this is true and what God say, it's going to happen. You see, God foreknew an event before it happened. We're all in agreement of that. But it didn't happen. That means it definitely was not predestined to happen. Why? Because it didn't happen. But... It was definitely foreknown by God because he shared it with David. But just because God foreknows a set of events that are possible does not mean that they must automatically happen every time. Theologians say it like this. Divine foreknowledge, I know something before it happens, does not resuscitate divine predestination many of you if you're like me you're like what'd you just say <laughs> so I say it like this when God shows you an event of something that could happen should happen or would happen does not automatically bring it to life in this timeline you call life could it happen yes would it happen you'll have to wait and see should it happen? <laughs> That's for God to conceal and you to find out. And go find out. That's the tension. Are you feeling it with me yet? Yeah. God foreknows every scenario, watch this, that could happen, would happen, or should happen. That's the foreknowledge of God. For everything that could happen does not always happen. 
Everything that would happen is a premature conversation and keeps you frozen in time. Tell me you don't think about these things more and, and you think about them so long, you're like, I really didn't do anything today. And everything that should happen does not always happen or Jesus would not say, pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. But the very few things that God has indeed said were predetermined to happen, they will most definitely happen. Y'all feel like we're walking through Romans 7 right now, don't you? But you know what? All things, somebody say all things. All things are not predestined to happen. Your Bible only says that there are a few things that are predestined to happen like Israel's part in the nations, like the imminent coming of Yeshua himself, his, his inevitable return, and the removal of corruption from all of creation and eternity future. And a few other things. Why is this so important to you right now? You have a part to play in this. You have a part to play in the means of how you get to the destinations that God is bringing you to. And when you think that no matter what decision you make, the outcome remains the same, you will self-inflict yourself and that leaves you wounded and unable to reach your purposes in life. Your Bible does not teach that every believer fulfills every purpose in his life that God had planned for him. What God said would happen to David and his men was a fact in the foreknowledge of God. But they were not predestined or it would have happened. That means, watch this, foreknowledge and predestined are separable. Can we do that? Because I think what we do as believers is we lump that all in all one category and we get really confused. Yeah. This good this morning? You okay? Yeah. The possibility given the set of circumstances was foreseen by God, but those facts were not predestined or they would have happened. That means foreknowledge and predestination or predest yeah, predestination is separable. That means foreknowledge does not, watch this, mandate the facts you see are predestined to happen. Why is this so important? Because just because God gives you a vision or shows you something does not automatically mean it must happen. It just means that it could possibly happen. And because you are not a robot, but are rather in a righteous relationship with God, you have the responsibility in the matter. And if it should happen, then you will need to be obedient or it will not happen. And these, and this will leave you with another wound in your life that will not heal until you do what you should do. Thank you, James. Saints King Jesus has done his part, all right? You need to ask yourself whether you've done your part. Shared foreknowledge of God is a privilege. Do you know you're privileged people? Shared foreknowledge of God is a privilege of the redeemed and the honor of kings to find out whether or not it was predestined. 
for your life by doing what he told you to do or showed you to do. It may wound you, watch this, in a positive way because it will cost you or it may wound you in a negative way because, well, maybe you're wrong when you get there. Anybody ever said, the Lord said you got there and you're like, that was my bad. Yes, we've made big ones. Houses, vehicle, relationships. It's not getting the relationships. Lifelong relationships. Anyway, now, now we're in the biblical counseling. So, How God can repair what you, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. But you know what a greater wound is? The greater wound of what if. What if. What if I would have done that? What if that was God? What if? That's not a wound that can really heal until you do something about it. You see, God showed David a fact that would happen if, somebody say if, if David went through with what God had shown him. But David made the choice to pivot and those facts did not happen. Why did, God, why did David pivot? I believe personally because he knew that if he followed through with what he had in his mind that God had shown him, it would cost them their lives. So then he's left with these thoughts. Could you imagine? And put yourself in David's shoes right now. The Lord said this is what's going to happen. And you're like, I'm not really okay with that. I don't know what to do with that. I mean, yes, Lord, but. Well, this is what God showed me, right? So, I mean, this is what God showed me would happen. So, I mean, that's it. God led me here. So it's definitely God that I'm in this situation. I could stay and fight because that's what I love to do. I can get captured and infiltrate and take the head off the enemy because, woo, that'd bring some glory to God. Even though it cost me my head, I'm okay with that. Or I could pick up my life, move shop, Go against the vision originally shown me and live to fight another day. They'll call me a coward, but they don't understand what. Or I can just yield to the inevitable and die because that would give glory to the Lord, too. But is it what he wants you to do with what he gave you? Either choice leaves a mark on David. There's no way out of this situation that does not Leave David wounded. <laughs> David says, well, I'm predestined to die. <laughs> Just not today. The possibility given the set of circumstances were foreseen, but the fact was not predestined or it would have happened. God did not lie. He told David what would happen if David does this or that. And that if in the matter comes because of the relationship that they have because David has a staff in his hand. David was close enough to God to understand that he had a choice in the matter. God foreknows all things that could happen and he foreknows all things that should happen. And the things that he foreknows will happen, the Bible calls predestined because no matter what all creation does wrong, these few things will matter will happen. These are the predetermined boundary lines that God 
set for his ultimate plan of redemption as spoken of in Acts 17, 28, that said we live and move and have our, bound, have our being inside these predestined boundary lines and inside of that we have free will to choose to say yes to what God said to us or showed us and that is a game changer. In David's case, <clears throat> he did, in David's case, he did so by sharing the outcome of David's next actions with him. And then watch this, left David with the choice of the outcome, the spirit. We call that partnership with God, the commission of God together in his inheritance. And you know what it did? It left a mark on the king. You ever have a mark? left on you an impression in your heart a game changer a direction changer in your whole life you can remember back years now when God did a thing when you came through something when he said this and then it impacted you so much let's think about the ones that hurt us it's like that hurt Lord and then and some years later you're like yeah but that was you and I needed to be wounded why because I had no scars what about the things that are not predetermined in the mind of God. As I know that I'm creating a bunch of questions for you and many of you have many arguments to bring to me later on these things of how I could be a little off wrong or whatever. Yes, let's go. So what about the things that do happen that are not predetermined or predestined in the mind of God? You know what I'm talking about, like when that, when that man rapes that woman. God predestined that because then it's him that authored it. What about when that woman kills that man? Is it a predestined event in the mind of God? No. God did not predestine events nor orchestrate premeditated murder, child sacrifice, injustice, or sin in any way. Go back to the garden and you'll see that. On the other hand, when you find your Self in a good situation, like a fine job, fine house, healthy bank account. It does not mean that God predestined that to happen to you either. Just ask the lottery winners or the rich young ruler or Pontius Pilate who wished that he were not in the position that he was to play a part in killing the son of man. Could you imagine his dreams moving into nightmares from that point on? They may or may not happen. That part is up to your obedience or the disobedience of man. Your Bible clearly says that the, there are a few things that are preset, predetermined, or predestined to happen, but it does not teach that all things are predestined. In other words, God did not need Adam to sin in order to complete his purpose for the creation. He did not need the man to rape that woman so that that person was conceived. He did not need Hitler to exterminate six million Jews to achieve the plan and purposes of God. Those events were not orchestrated in the mind of God. They were orchestrated in the mind of Satan and carried out by disobedient men. Ephesians 2 says this in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of air. The prince, 
Uh, the spirit who is now at work through disobedience. You want to see Satan? Just find rebellion. And that's a hard one to swallow because that can be a little close to home. He did not create any of creation to fail, but he created us to make the choices that could cause us to fail. Did he foresee the possibility where you could fail? Yes. Did he also see the possibility where you could not? Yes. Does he foresee a possibility where you'll fail? Yes. Does he foresee a possibility where you will succeed? Succeed. Yes. Do you have a matter of choice in the matter? Do you have a choice in the matter? Every time. The first time David seeks God, God gives an answer. Before David is even a king in the eyes of men, God prepares David for his reign by teaching him how to rule and reign and make decisions based on partial revelation God gives him. You never have all the answers. Paul admits this in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, on our best day, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but that doesn't keep us from moving forward with what we do know. When we make a wrong choice, it hurts and hurts other people. And David knew it. But that wound will never heal if you stop there. This is how David lived, and God loved it. Saul didn't live that way. God hated it. David lived that way. God knew it, and he called him out to be a king. What God foresaw didn't happen because he shared what he saw with David, and David held the one thing that could alter the entire outcome. Obedience. Obedience to what God wanted to accomplish. God wanted to save a rebellious people, but he didn't want David to die yet. Saints, have God ever shown you a possibility, a possible inevitable fail in your life? Close your eyes. If I do this, I'm going to fail. It's inevitable. Has he ever shown you a possible inevitable fail in your life, but it didn't come to pass because, well, you changed the direction and God did not discipline you for it. I was right, but only partially. <laughs> if you live long, long enough in the kingdom, you'll get there with me. I was right, but then something must have happened in the unseen realm and now I need to make a hard right. And then you feel, how do you feel about that? You're like, Am I in sin? I was right, but then I was wrong. <laughs> so I'm going to turn around and God says, now nah, I can work with that. I can work with that. Stubborn mules stay in one place, right? Stiff-necked people. But he's like, I just need a little bit pliable flexibility so you can actually, I can do something with you in the kingdom. Has God ever showed you a possible inevitable fail? Yes. Then why is it 
not just as conceivable that when God shows you a possible amazing outcome in your life, that it too can come to pass no matter how impossible it is. Size of the coin. Isn't faith the factor that takes impossible and makes it inevitable? Anybody want to go read Hebrews? Isn't it? Yes, the answer is yes. Saints, God, uh, David knew this because David knew who he was in covenant with. And on the days that he forgot, he could look at his scars that he collected along the way to help him remember and believe again. It was like David had a staff in his hand, but it was much greater than the staff that Henry Stanley had in his hand. He had the right to rule and to reign and to make decisions on behalf of the chief shepherd. The truth is, saints, that God will give you a glimpse of what you could be, but it is up to you of whether it will be. Men, do the, men don't like this actual conversation. So what they do, because they don't like the actual kind of responsibility that we're talking about inside the sovereignty of God, so they create unbiblical doctrines and fortify themselves with illusions that they spend their entire invested life on. Those are glory-less kings. They are poor and not rich in faith. Isn't that what happened to Eve? She swallowed a half-truth and empowered the illusionists in her life to send her hiding from God? That doesn't work, saints. You will spend your whole life in a garden of God hiding from God, ashamed of the life that you cultivated, and not even realize that you have settled for glory-less kingship. I believe that God has shared his foreknowledge with some of you about things that he did not want to happen. If you do this, then this will happen. And if, well, if you do that, then that'll happen. And because you knew that it wasn't of God, but you did it anyway, it feels like a curse. Just like what happened to Henry Stanley. And it caused you to be wounded and you're not sure that it'll ever heal. Some of you have stayed right where you were when God shared his foreknowledge with you about what could be if you would have gone. Oh, those are tough conversations to have with God. Some of you feel like you should have gone and now you just feel disobedient and you feel wounded. This conversation is right now is causing some of you to question some of your past decisions or your current reality and wondering, well, what would have happened if? Or what does that mean if I did make that decision that was not God? That never entered David's mind. In 1 Samuel 23, it was not present. And if those thoughts are in yours right now, it's why you're still where you're at. David was not in a good place. 
David was in a position where he and his men and those in Keilah were all at risk of death. But David knew that those kinds of thoughts would give him a paralysis by analysis and not be able to move forward in the next crucial move. David did not pause to factor his past failures. David did not slow down to take inventory of his inability or or ability. He simply sought the Lord for foreknowledge, did not entertain that it was a foregone conclusion and took a little of what he did know and did a big, big thing with it. And God trusted him with the outcome. If God foreknows an event, it may or may not happen. If God knows an event that may or may not happen and had be predestined that event, it have not predestined event. It could have just been the product of your choices. So many of us like to pamper our flesh with our wrong choices. When we get there, you say, well, everything happens for a reason. <laughs> Kings wear a heavy crown of responsibility of what they get right and what they get wrong. You don't get to choose one or the other. Why am I covering this complicated subject to you today? I told you. Our aim is to free you from the paralysis of analysis. That is a person who receives a truth or a foreknowledge but does nothing with it. And also to empower you to move forward through your uncertainties, to move forward through your regrets, to to move forward through your pains because those things are inevitable. But what must remain is your faithfulness over time through all them. Listen to me this morning. David didn't know if God predestined his men or he to die that day. But he did see a foreknowledge in which it could happen. But you know why he didn't even entertain that? He wasn't concerned about it. It wasn't his concern. I got a, I got a vision from the Lord. Now I'm all concerned about how it's going to play out and if it's going to happen and, you know, is this like foregone conclusion? David didn't think that way and neither should you. But David did know after receiving the foreknowledge or possible outcome from God that day that the, that the end of this battle did not justify the means in which he would get there. David knew that every end is up to God, but that God left the means up to David. Since the end of your life is sovereignly ordained. It is preordained for once for every man to die. That means that but, but the means that you get there and how and where you choose to live is, is up to you. And the quality of your obedience determines what that looks like. It determines whether you'll be a poor king or a rich king. Rich in faith, I mean. Saints, free will is a king's rule, room to rule. But he must do so aiming at the sovereign end of God. For that to happen, you must first seek the Lord's face and the Lord's written word just like David did. You must expect his foreknowledge to be shared with you just like David did. You also 
must understand that you should not be preoccupied with whether or not he shows you the, what is predestined to happen. If it was God's will, you will know it when it happens. But for now, guess what? You get to remain free. I'm trying to break the shackles of your demonic doctrines that you don't even know that you have. You are free. Be free. If it was not God's will, you will know it was not when, once it comes to pass. And you know what? If you get a few wounds on the way, it's going to heal them. But what is for sure, you will have lived a full life that was unrestrained by what ifs. <laughs> Slavery. What would have been or what if I had done this or that? Jesus said, tomorrow has his own problems. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow's not here. Live today. The other way, there's no glory in the other way. Saints, the truth is, is that most people live their life never attempting the big things God has shown them would be possible if they would only step out and do it because where we, where we start at? First conversation with God. I'm afraid. I'm afraid, Lord. You've anointed me, but I am afraid. They're afraid. They're afraid because I hadn't told anybody, but I'm afraid. They never fail because they never try. They never fail because they never try. They never try because they are afraid to get wounded, and that hurts. People hurt me, Lord. I can't follow you because I only found you in them. I don't understand why you use your body, God. Can't I just be in relationship with you and not people? No, I designed it this way for a reason. Other people live their lives never failing to try but never stop to consider that it mean, what it means. They just always justify the ends because God, well, you showed you something, right? It's supposed to be painless. <laughs> you need to pay attention to the pre-cross Jesus. Those people are also the wounded and those who wound. So that is reality. So what should we do with a life of inevitable affliction that comes from imperfect decision making? Have you ever met a man that makes perfect decisions 100% of the time? Should we become monks and live in a cave because there's a possibility that I get hurt? Didn't work for Elijah. If God thought like that, then you would have not even been created. I believe this is what Jesus was trying to show us when he, when he appeared after his resurrection to remind his disciples that what Remind his disciples 
of what a life following him actually looks like. A few of us in here take Krav Maga. We spar with one another with knives. And the, if you're going to spar one another with knives, what's the first thing you should learn? You're like, run away. You're going to get cut. Get over it. The point is not to get cut. The point is not not to get cut. It's to not die. The point is not to get, to, you're going to get wounded. You're going to get cut up. Actually, the masters of this have scars all over them. That's the ones you want to spar with. What do we usually do? Somebody will come at you with a knife, right? Somebody comes at you with a knife like this, where you're, you're like, huh. It's like, that's not the move. You actually go in, not out. You're like, that doesn't make sense to my flesh. Somebody comes like this. I'm supposed to go this way. No, you don't. Somebody comes at you like this, and then you're coming in, embracing them, and disarming them. But our flesh doesn't want to do that. It wants to run away all the time because we're afraid to get wounded. John chapter 20, verse 24 says this. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. He, there was a truth, but he didn't know it. He didn't have a, he had a secondhand knowledge, not a foreknowledge directly from God. So he's like, I don't trust y'all. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of those nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe you. Unless I see the scars, I will not trust and I definitely will not believe. After eight days, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them, and Yeshua came to him. And the doors having been shut, he stood in the midst of them and said, Shalom. Put your heart at rest, Thomas. Be at ease. Divine order's here. Peace be with you, Thomas. And Thomas said, then he said to Thomas, come here, Thomas. I want you to put your finger in my womb. And I want you to see the scars that I chose to keep And I want you to reach here in your hand and I want you to put, them, put your finger in my side. I want you to put your finger in my wound. And do not be unbelieving, but believe again. Thomas answered him and said, my Lord, my God. I have been so petrified by what you showed me that I was afraid to move forward 
until I could see the scars myself. And Yeshua says to him, because you have seen me, you will believe, but blessed are those who do not have all the answers. They go and get some scars themselves. And yet, believe. Saints, our lives are a series of choices we make. Some of them are wicked and others are righteous. Some of those harm us and other of those heal us. But if you are going to follow Yeshua, you are going to feel honored to carry scars just like he does because they testify to your ongoing covenant relationship that you have with him and he has with you and whether it is Saul or whether it is Satan or whether it is tomorrow's unknown enemy guess what when you flex those scars they're going to know who you are covenant with. When you let somebody else see your scars, put their finger in your wounds, your scars will make your enemies flee and those you're ministering to free. I'm going to read you the rest of the story about Henry Stanley. It says, in that time, the African tribes were not the only people who cut covenant. Arabs, Syrians, and the Balkans in the southern peninsula of southeastern Europe also practiced this ceremony. They did so for these three reasons. The weaker tribe entered into a covenant with a stronger tribe to keep from being destroyed. Saints, you may not know what's next, but your covenant promises. It promises you that you won't be destroyed. Struck down, but not destroyed. Number two, a business partnership between two men happened to ensure neither would take advantage of one another. Do you know when God shows you something, but it doesn't happen, it can only be because he has your best interest in mind or someone else's best interest in mind. Number three, two men would devote themselves to each other and their families because of their strong affection for one another as, watch this, lifelong friends. They became equals. The covenant you made with God makes you best friends with his son. As Proverbs 27, 6 says, the wounds from a friend can be trusted. But the enemy multiplies kisses. Henry Stanley, on his exploration through Africa, cut covenant 50 times with various 
chieftains. And we can certainly understand why. Watch this. Anytime he would come across an unfriendly tribe, <laughs> he would just hold up his right arm with those 50 gunpowder scars. And anyone, the attacker, would run in a different direction. How long has it been since you showed your scars? How long has it been since you exposed your wounds? How many of you still have wounds that should be scars so that when the enemy comes to taunt you with them, you simply flex. Say, look at these 50 scars. And the enemy flees. BibleStudy.org Bible says it like this. So we're closing out this message. The number 50 derives its meaning from its relationship <laughs> to the coming of God's Holy Spirit. 50 can be found at least 154 times in the Bible. And after Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene on a special Sunday, he ascended to the Father in heaven. His ascension as a type of first fruits from the dead occurred on the day God told the Israelites they were to wave a sheaf composed of first fruits from the harvest. It is on this day that the count of 50 days of what we call the day of Pentecost begins. In the Newer Testament, the word Pentecost comes from the Greek word 50th, also known as the Feast of Weeks or First Fruits or what we call Shavuot. It was on this special day that God first poured his Holy Spirit upon 120 believers who were gathered because things look, my emphasis, a lot different than they expect it to. But even though it cost them a lot of difficulty, there were, they were not willing to quit. They became the first fruit of God's special harvest, a new species on earth. Jesus, as mankind's high priest, the chief of all chiefs in heaven, had to first cut covenant and offer the blood of his sacrifice to God upon the heavenly atonement, for heavenly atoning offer, on the altar, sorry, before the Holy Spirit could be available to all. This all adds up to 50, which points directly to the Feast of Pentecost, or Shavuot, and the day that those who would be willing even though they were not guaranteed all the answers, would yield their wounds to God, and God would heal their wounds by infusing them with the kavod, the fire of God. Some of you need the fire of God to cure and sear your wounds so that they become scars. And from that day on, their wounds would become Gun powder scars that cries out, my God heals even my poorest of decisions. And if God is for me, then who can be against me? Some of you in this place this morning have self-inflicted wounds that you think God's not big enough to heal. You made too much, big of a mess out of it. How could he? Or should he? 
David was given foreknowledge of God that he would, in fact, kill the Philistines. And he was not afraid to do so, even if it cost him a few scars. It cost him scars along the way because he knew that those scars would were wounds that would eventually be healed if he would remain faithful to the truth and to the life that God had given him. David knew his scars said something about him and everything about his God. It said that although things did not go as he foresaw them to go, they always went as God intended them to go. But the next time David was given foreknowledge from God, he took into account who exactly would be receiving those inevitable wounds. And he considered who it was that would be the means to his end. And this time, it was the innocent. Some of his own men and the people of Keilah. And because he knew he had some kind of say-so in the commission, he figured that those kind of wounds might be the kind that he inflicts that will never heal. And it's scars that testify to the king of glory, not your festering wounds. And what does Hosea 6.1 say to us? Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we might live in his presence. Friends, you know a mother does not despise her scars. She receives that when she gives birth. Do you? A warrior does not despise the scars he received in saving others' lives. Do you? Jesus didn't despise nor hide the scars he incurred to have you. Because your scars say that when you are in covenant with God, your wounds do not stay that way. And if you stay faithful, your wounds will be healed too. And you will have some scars to testify. Proverbs 25, verse 2, as I promised you, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to search out what you should do with what you have been given. Romans 8, 28 should make a little more sense to you now. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God partners with those who love him back in the totality of all things to meet God's purposes for his life. For those he foreknew, 
For those he foresaw the possibility of saying yes to him, he also did something else. For those who would say yes, he predetermined, predetermined a few things. He predestined them to these things, to become conformed to the image of his son. That's predestined for those of you who love him. Isn't that good news for you? Yes. It's predestined for you to be conformed to the image of his son. Now wonder it's tension between you and the Lord on some days. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. That's a family. And though he, those he predestined, he called you. When you said yes, you started to hear the call. You started to hear the Lord. And now it's up to you to what to do with it. He also justified you he also made you just as you should be just as it never happened and then tells you what to do with the consequences you made of it and the these he justified what he do and when he glorifies you and you come to him and you are wounded he infuses your wounds with his kavod, his presence. And those wounds heal. And infused in those wounds are an explosive, powerful testimony. And you get to become those who are called glorified kings with gunpowder scars to show the enemy. Stand with me.